Last week's message was the church is, and then how do we answer that? How do we fill that in? What, what picture must come to mind? And I'll continue this theme with a few more pictures that Scripture gives us. What is the church? What must it be? Therefore, what must it become in many places and expressions, maybe even here amongst us? I began with a few things that it's not. The church is not a building. The church is not an event. Though the church may gather for events, often using the same building, it is neither. The church is not a business. If you grew up attending or being a part of a church in this country, you grew up in largely dominated corporate church culture. It's what we've known for maybe 50 years or more. What do corporations pursue but expansion, influence, power, and revenue? Is the church known for those things today? Tragically, on the list of what do you think of when you think of church, many different studies asking similar kinds of questions framed that way return things that should never be on that list. But we know our reality by just witnessing what's happened in our midst, in our current local denominations and the larger denominations and American evangelicalism as a whole, things like hypocrisy, scandal, immorality, impropriety, cover-ups, toxic leadership, hierarchy, patriarchy, bigotry, and more. What sets the church apart from large-scale corporations? Maybe simply that they are much more fragmented and disunified. This is not the only state of the church, but it is a part of our present reality, which is tragic. If the church is not meant to be a business, an event, or certainly not a building, what is it? We looked at the primary word used for church last week, ekklesia in the Greek. If you break it down, the prefix ek means out of and the root is kaleo, to call. So some have said the church is those that are called out, the called out ones. And perhaps that's what the early church recognized themselves as and said that, that's, a, that's a good word. But previous to the church being born and even being the church, in Greek, the ecclesia was, was largely a non-religious gathering, a gathering with intention by really any group or entity coming together with a purpose. So the, the elders of a city or a town would be the ecclesia if they needed to come together to make decisions and to decide a course or a direction. So it was not primarily a religious term, but in the first and second century usage, ecclesia was an assembly of people coming together with purpose and with intention. So if we bring those two kind of ideas together, both the root of the word itself and the way that it was used, we could come to a definition of at least how the early church received and saw themselves. Those followers of Jesus that would distinguish them coming together, gathering together, assembling with intention, with a purpose. That then became the church. Christians hanging out together was not church. It was community. It was friendship, just like it can be today. It can become church. You could go from sitting around watching a Seahawks game on a Sunday morning, 
Say, you know what, I, I, I was not at all encouraged or fulfilled by this experience. Let's turn off the TV, let's pause, let's encourage one another. What has God been doing in your life as you eat together and then you pause and pray for one another? You've now gone from community or friendship to the church in action. We are not today attending church, we are the church. We're coming together with an intention to draw nearer to our God who's drawn near to us in the person of Christ, to the breaking of the bread, to the table we are drawing near with an intention to be reminded of who our God is and what he has done. We are coming together collectively to give ourselves to the teaching of scriptures as the early church did, Acts 2, to the apostles' teaching who was trying to reveal the, that Jesus was truly the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. He is. Based on everything that has been written, we see it. Now we have more scriptures, the Greek scriptures as well, but we're giving ourselves to learning more of who our God is and what he has done in the person of Jesus by the teaching of the word, by coming together around the word. We pray to fellowship. Now today we won't pause and take a meal together like we did last week, but maybe there will be conversation as there already has around a cup of coffee. May our conversation go deeper than, than, than some of the, the natural, good, surface conversation, but into truly, how, how are you? Meaning that, wanting the answer. How are you? How has the last week been? What's been good? What's been hard? How can I pray for you? That becomes encouragement and fellowship. The church in action. When the church is committed to any of these things that the early church devoted themselves, we saw a couple weeks ago that word devoted from Acts 2 is moving with strength toward. They moved with strength toward the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the central table of Christ, and to prayer. So as we've already done, pausing and praying, and maybe one of us will be leading us in prayer, but as you engage in those same prayers, as you agree in your spirit, or you pray different words, or different heart, or simply offer your spirit up to the Lord with us, you are moving with strength into greater community, which is the church. The church with intention and with purpose. So we are the church, we're not attending the church. Interesting that while scripture uses the word ecclesia 114 times, there's not much definition given in the scriptures, simply a lot of description of what these disciples did, of who they were. And then we're given many pictures, analogies, metaphors for the assembly, for the gathering, for God's people together. Why are we given so many various images and pictures? Probably because the church is complex. It's not simple. It's much more of an organism than an organization. And so there's no way to truly define it or hem it in. It's God's people in action, with intention. Pictures are worth a thousand words, after all. We looked at a couple last week, some of the main ones used in various places of Scripture by various authors in kind of different ways. Those tend to rise to the top. We looked at body and bride, one functional, the body of Christ, one positional, the bride of Christ. I'll look at a couple more today. There's honorable mentions. The church is described like a city or a kingdom. We are like citizens of a new nation with new government, with Jesus, our king. Agricultural metaphors are used of the church. 
Things like vine and field and vineyard and plant that grow, that's organic, that give us that kind of perspective and facet of the church. There's some martial and army analogies, which was just very front of mind, living in the first century, thinking of the Roman Empire. The church, whenever, whenever that kind of imagery is used, it's completely contrasted to the forces of the world. But there were analogies that we could grasp. Think of Paul's famous putting on the armor of God. Not to fight in this world, but recognizing there's spiritual battles at play. The two more I give today are both, I think, both positional and functional. See if you agree as we go through this. The flock and the family. Two Fs. Maybe that'll be the grade of this sermon. The flock, sheep and shepherd imagery Describing God, shepherd, and sheep, his people, runs throughout the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and the Greek scriptures. Probably the most famous of all the Psalms. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads, restores, comforts, protects. He is with me. Such a powerful image by King David. In fact, I'd like to read that together as we close this message. So if you have a device or a Bible, Psalm 23, uh, we'll read it in the ESV. So have that ready as we, as we respond. What a great prayer reminding us of, in that way, positionally, who we are collectively. Of course, that can be an individual response. God is my shepherd. But so much of the imagery is, co- is a collective. God is our shepherd, and we are like the sheep. Jesus uses this metaphor pretty clearly in John chapter 10, verse 14, which would have been an amazing statement considering the Jewish belief of God, Yahweh, as our shepherd, when Jesus said, John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, very clearly taking a divine picture upon himself, as he did repeatedly in his ministry and clearly in John. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, He's primarily speaking of non-Jews. Those on the outside, I've come for them also. I must bring them in, he said. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. This is positionally who we are, but functionally we can start to make that bridge. If we are sheep and we have a shepherd, what is our response? What does that mean of us? What must we do? But listen and follow. Now most of us didn't grow up on functioning sheep farms. Maybe there's a few, don't admit it, but you, some of you did grow up in animal farms. In fact, that picture does come to mind a little bit as I was going through this. Who are the sheep in animal farm? Four legs, good. Two legs, bad. No? Okay. They were just, they represented the, the lowest, the dumbest, the mob in George Orwell's animal farm. And I, It's not that far off from kind of the imagery that's given of sheep. And if you, I guess, if you did grow up on a farm, this was probably much more offensive language. 
as it would have been in this first century. Sheep were really, really the dumbest animals, and maybe, maybe are, the dumbest, most helpless animals once domesticated. And it, oh, wait a minute. Is there wild sheep? No, because they can't survive on their own. Oh, well, maybe the bighorn. They've got something going. But this image of sheep that have been domesticated is the image that's given here of us with a shepherd. You know, there's evidence of sheep dying of starvation and dehydration within 200 yards of fresh drinking water and grass, a grass pasture. Without a shepherd, the domesticated sheep doesn't have much going for them. No defense, right? No, no claws, no sharp teeth, no scales or spikes, no fierce growl. Dull, flat teeth, soft and pudgy, fairly delicious tasting, and they bleat. That's their defensive voice. And if this wasn't enough, God throws in really bad eyesight and a horrible smell of wet wool. So this is the image, and I won't press it too far, but I have wondered if God created the sheep so he would have a good metaphor for us. Maybe it was just an easy, low-hanging fruit. And yet, he loves us. Baby sheep, baby lambs are so cute and so adorable. Maybe he sees us and is reminded of the life and the joy that we can bring, though sometimes we are helpless, slow, blind, and smelly. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. We've just wandered. This imagery of kind of wandering aimlessly and helplessly, needing a shepherd to draw us back, to pursue us, to rescue us, to defend us, to call us in. Jesus uses that imagery repeatedly as the good shepherd. This word in Greek, shepherd, is poimain. It only shows up a few times in, in the scriptures. It shows up more as a verb to shepherd in response to how we are to treat one another or certainly leaders within God's church are to respond. But only, I think, three times is it used as a noun. Interesting, because that is the word we've chosen in our history to use for the leaders of churches, pastor. The ESV never uses the word pastor, but translates that word poimain simply as shepherd. And we could probably be splitting hairs, but I think it's interesting because Jesus is the one called the chief shepherd, the first shepherd, the senior pastor. And I think we should be hesitant to use titles that are only used of Jesus in the scriptures. And I've wondered if we're advocating with language that's been inherited, sometimes breaking free of that language is important. Other times, as long as we understand the history and the roots, I think we can use these terms. But primarily, and as elders in the church, of which I am one, we are primarily under shepherds, part of the flock, serving one another, joining in with Jesus in his ministry to care for, to protect, to guard, to try to lead the flock as we follow Jesus with the flock. So under shepherds is a good term. That's a picture 
of who we are, reminded that we need a shepherd, that we are loved that deeply, that we are pursued by our good shepherd with that heart. As we were the lost sheep of the 99, we are the one, everyone. And Jesus has left the 99 to come for us. Second picture, family. The second F, maybe a little more palatable, maybe. Jesus reveals clearly that anyone who follows him, who does his will, becomes a part of his family. In Matthew 12, 48, he said this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Remember, his actual mother and brothers are coming to to see him, to get him, to get some time with him. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. What he's saying is, "This, this is my family. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Very familial, intimate relationship. Now, Jesus is not teaching the diminishing here of the earthly family. He's trying to reorient our mindset that if we are called into God's family, that's our eternal position. We have an earthly family for a lifetime. We are part of God's family for eternity. He's trying to reorient our mindset to see spiritually, to hold that perspective, not to diminish the importance of earthly mothers and brothers and sisters, but to elevate what it means to be of the family of God and the ideal picture of those kinds of relationships. That's what Jesus wants for us with him. He's the one that shows us and teaches us the intimacy of God as father. Before Jesus, that was a very uncommon way to view God, Yahweh. God was the all-powerful, holy one. To have an intimate relationship with that God was, was not common, not commonplace for, for the Jewish people. Jesus brought it intimately. He, he taught his disciples to pray, our Father. He prayed to his Father with even the more intimate term, Abba, like Daddy or like Papa in English. It would almost have been a blasphemous thought that we could address God, Yahweh, as Papa. And that's what Jesus taught and showed and modeled, revealed for us. Paul picked up on that same language in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. He said, because you are children, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, which cries, Abba, Father, Papa, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God, an heir. Jesus, as the Son of God, was the rightful heir of all things, yes? And Jesus revealed that we, like brothers and sisters, join him to receive the inheritance of all that God the Father wants to give and pour out. It's an an unbelievable concept, difficult to receive, but we're invited to. And Paul consistently and repeatedly uses familial language to describe the followers of Jesus as brothers and sisters in the faith, a part of the household, the oikos of God. Romans 8, 16, the spirit 
himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Of course, Jesus is so much more than a brother. But we are invited to see him in that familial way. We are more than adopted in, like orphans brought into a new family, though that language is used, and we can resonate with that. But more than being adopted in as orphans, we are reunited as prodigals. That's the primary familial picture that Jesus uses of who we are, all of us. We are rightful sons and daughters and heirs who have left, have taken what God has given and left and wandered to live life on our own, in our own way, for our own desires. And yet God's heart and longing is that we would come back, being reunited, restored. That's the picture Jesus gives in the famous prodigal son narrative. Luke 15, verse 20 and following. Here's the reunion of that picture. So the son, the child, got up and went to his father. He came to his senses, having lost all, squandered all. But while he was still a long way off, and we can read between the lines, rehearsing what he would say to beg forgiveness, to ask for a place back in the family, or even as a servant, not being, expecting to be restored. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, because he was looking for him every day and filled with compassion, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned. So he goes right into his rehearsing. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick. Since he would not even entertain the confession yet. There may have been a time for that. That's part of the restoration of relationship. But in that moment, the father's first priority is bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. That's the priority of the father for all of us Though we've been given much, who have wandered, have strayed, have rejected, and are finding our way back. No longer an orphan, no longer a slave or a servant, restored as a son and daughter in the family of God. Paul picks up on this language repeatedly, as mentioned. Here's, here's one, Ephesians 2, 18. Through Christ, all now have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, children of the household of God. These are all examples of our position as children of God, brothers and sisters in the faith with one another. Going back to Acts 2, which we've looked at repeatedly for a number of weeks now toward the end of Acts chapter 2. 
But following the passage of what they were devoted to, here's a description of the church in action as family. These next few verses, verse 44, Acts 2, 44 to the end. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A healthy church family, though that word family doesn't show up here, it's, it's evident of an ideal, of a high ideal, of what even a true family that often our earthly families don't even represent well. What's mine is yours. All that I have is yours for the good of the family, for your joy. What needs do you have? We, we give one to another, parents to children, brothers and sisters to one another. My kids don't come out of the womb with that generous spirit, do they? Still working on that. And guess what? Kids are a reflection, a mirror of the hearts of their parents. So how convicting that is. But a healthy church family striving for this ideal would meet together regularly, both in large groups and in small, valuing relationship, not isolation. As the author of Hebrews says, do not give up meeting together. It's easy to do. Some find themselves in that habit because it takes devotion, it takes commitment. Much easier to stay away, to do your own thing, to remain in isolation. Do not give up meeting together, but come together to encourage one another all the more because that day is approaching where Christ's return is coming. Be together when that happens is the urging, valuing relationship not isolation. Caring and sharing for one another, with one another, valuing generosity, not selfishness. Inviting one another into our homes, which is vulnerable at times, maybe always. Celebrating the blessings that God has given. Sharing openness and transparency with those values, not isolation and distrust. Now, some will say this is merely idealistic. There's no way today we're too far down the road. Our culture is so different we have so much history that we can't rewrite. We'll never see that happen again. Perhaps also you've been a part of a church that is claimed to be family but is anything but. Perhaps you've experienced hurt, betrayal. You felt used even by the church claiming to be family. Or worse, rigid hierarchical, controlling, manipulative, abusive, and toxic. As mentioned, unfortunately, tragically, that's not uncommon for the church. The thought of trusting a church again or leadership or being close in that way is anxiety-inducing. As I wrote some of these words and rehearsed them, I wonder why even, why even say it? You're in the room. You're watching online. And yet I know some of your stories. Tragically, I know the stories of those that are no longer here who would say, yes, 
And while I believe that today this is not a hierarchical, abusive, or toxic church culture, would any pastor stand before you and claim that it is? But I pray that I and we as elders are humble enough to recognize that potential within any of us. And by addressing it and not shying away from it, God, reveal any way that your church, meant to be your family, is not leaning into your heart in a way that loves, welcomes, cares, repents, follows your way, Jesus, to the bottom. You want to be great? Become the servant of all. To give up all willingly because our leader did. That's the way of Christ. May that always be our way. Lord, help us. You as the body, pray for us. Pray for one another. You are a brother or a sister if you've leaned into this community. You have a responsibility to serve in that same way, to love in that same way, to start with humility, introspection of where you've even joined in the potential of hurting or harming or abusing a brother or sister. Again, I don't believe that's a characteristic of this body of you. I'm proud of you. I love you. I'm grateful for, to be a part of what I believe is a healthy community. But I also know this is not a perfect church. There's no perfect church. That's maybe a quick excuse way to say there's no perfect church. And we have said that. If you're looking for a perfect church, you'll never find it. <laughs> and yet we have so much room to grow, always. May we grow in the love of Christ Now, you have probably, if you've experienced even from whatever the, the, the spectrum, and I, I'm not trying to diminish it, diminish it you, you maybe have gone through a long recovery even to be in this room or be listening online for, for hurt or abuse that you've faced. I honor that. I respect that. I'm not trying to change your mind and say, you must trust the church again or leadership again. But I will invite us all Maybe to change our prayers. Maybe you're already praying for the church the way that Jesus prayed for the church. But we're invited to that. Maybe with no faith or hope that it will ever be. Back to the lament heart. that says, I long for that. Jesus, I think, lamented even over the church. Longing for what it was meant to be, the family of God. Could we pray like that? Remembering that Jesus loves the church, died for the church, and still longs for the church to be pure and holy and to love like a family, to be one. I think we see the lament of Jesus over his people, God's people, in Luke 13, 34, coming toward the end of his ministry, and he is apparently looking over the city of Jerusalem or on one of his famous withdrawal moments where he's praying and seeking the Lord. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Couldn't get any worse than that. 
How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Even Jesus mixes metaphors sometimes, so we're in good company. But this is his heart. And how does he pray for his followers who would become the church? Probably the most famous place is John 17. The night before his crucifixion, he prays for the church pouring out his heart to God his Father for who the church must be. And this is how I'll close today. So if you want to get your device or your Bibles to John 17 and also Psalm 23, as we'll read together, listen to the heart of Jesus praying for the church and join him in these prayers. Maybe just join your your heart with them. Maybe agree with the longing that is there. Maybe for the first time in a long time for who the church must be. Maybe your focus and your heart will go to us, to this church, to this place, to Union Hill. Maybe it will go to the broader church. Maybe both. Jesus prays like this in John 17, starting in verse 9, and we'll jump around a little bit. Try to, try to stay with me if you can. I'll try to highlight it. It's an incredible prayer, the, the most, most lengthy prayer we have recorded of Jesus in the scriptures. John 17, 9. Father, I pray for them. He's praying for his disciples, but you'll see he prays for all who will come to follow him, which is us today. So receive this as well as you join in with these prayers. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. Doesn't mean he wasn't praying for the world at times, for all those, as we know, that's his heart. But in this moment, this is the prayer for the church. They are yours. And then jump down to verse 11, halfway through. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. You'll see this repeated, this oneness, this unity. Verse 13, I am coming to you now, But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Praise for joy, fullness of joy. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. It's been against them. For they're not of this world anymore. Not any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. A powerful prayer. Receive that. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified, holy, set apart. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be us in the legacy, the inheritance of the apostles and disciples. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, 
to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. How often do we pray like this, obviously not with the same words but the same heart for one another and for the broader body. We may have very little hope that this could ever be. What a high vision this is given. When it seems like the, the church itself, whether local or denominational or more global, is more divided and fractured than ever. And Jesus' most repeated prayer for the church is unity, is oneness. And the only way that that is possible is through the power of the Spirit in us. His ideal is that we would be so unified as he is unified with the Father. Jesus has not given up on his church, on his family. May we pray for that heart and pray in that way. May we lament at how fractured and broken and far short it has fallen, whether we've personally been impacted or we know dear loved ones and friends who have. Jesus, thank you for not giving up on us. Jesus, transform us from stubborn sheep who won't budge when they're in danger, who wander away from the protection of the shepherd, to faithful sheep who know your voice, are drawn to you, and follow where you lead. Transform us from prodigal sons and daughters who pursue our own independent life, taking what you have freely given and using it only for self, Convict our hearts that we might confess. But help us receive the love of the Father who pours out again grace and mercy and invites us into your presence. You embrace us, God, our good, good Father. May our greatest treasure be with you. And Jesus, make us one as you are one. Forgive our unbelief. Help us still believe in miracles. We love you, Lord. Amen.